Working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast Working Drummer. I'm Zach Albetta, and today I'm excited to bring you a conversation with one of my best friends in L.A., a jazz vibraphonist, Nick Mancini. He's spent a decade in L.A. and a decade in New York before that, and has amassed a huge body of work in creative music. He's released nine albums as a leader and been involved in countless others as a producer and sideman. And in 2014, he was voted Best Jazz Percussionist by Drum Magazine. During my time in L.A., uh, Nick and I spent many hours talking about creativity and business and college and the state of jazz. Uh, he has some really compelling opinions about all these things, and I've been wanting him to share them on this podcast for a while. This episode is sponsored by Mapex Drums, and here's my partner, Matthew Krause, to tell you a little bit more about that. So in Nashville, there are two great drum companies, Mapex and Sonar, distributed through a company called KHS America. And I recently approached them about the possibility of supporting our podcast, and they said, you know what, come to our office and check out and play this new entry-ish level Mapex kit that we are running a holiday promotion on. Uh, okay. So the idea uh, was more or less, if you dig the kit, talk about it. If not, we'll think of something else. They wanted me to have a real experience. And uh, so, yeah, I played it. It sounded great. Uh, now, it's been a while since my first kit, but I have to say I lucked out and got a great kit for the money, and it got me through college and into my professional playing years. I think those kinds of well-made entry and mid-level kits are hard to find these days, but this Mapex kit is a killer-sounding and great-looking kit. It's called the Mapex Storm, and the kit I played was 1-up, 2-down, 12, 14, 16, 18-by-22 kick, and a matching snare, Planet Z, Zildjian Cymbals, Crash, Ride Hi-Hat, and of course, all the hardware needed for that setup. I have to be honest, the kick pedal design was not my cup of tea, as it was a heelless plate. But it also tells me that Mapex is not afraid to think outside the box. The street price, as they call it, for all those drums, with hardware and cymbals, for this promotion, is $7.99. Mapexdrums.com is where you can go check out the Storm Series and find your nearest Mapex dealer. And I realize that there are those of you listening right now who have moved beyond this level, but if you know a student, a church, or anyone looking for a complete, great-sounding kit, uh, the Storm Series by Mapex just might be the answer. We're doing a survey here at Working Drummer Podcast to get a better sense of who our listeners are, what you all like about the podcast, and what we could do better. If you take a minute and fill it out, you'll be entered to win one of three prizes from Aquarian Drumheads. Third prize is a T-Kit snare tune-up kit. Second prize is a 14-inch super pad. And first prize is a set of Aquarian heads, your choice of sizes and models, batter heads only, for up to a six-piece kit. There's a link to the survey on our Facebook page uh, and also on our homepage at workingdrummer.net. It's 10 questions. It'll take you about 30 seconds. So we thank you in advance for your feedback and thanks to Aquarian for their sponsorship. So I hope you enjoy this talk with my buddy Nick Mancini. He's never had any interest in playing commercial music. He's always driven by the next artistic endeavor. Uh, and he's just one of the smartest and funniest dudes I know. So let's get to it. The new record uh, is is out, right? It dropped. It's out. It's into the world. I guess, yeah. I guess you could say it dropped. Yes, it is in. It is a, meaning it is available. 
Um, we did uh, the first release at LACMA mm-hmm. back in August. Los Angeles County Museum of Art. <clears throat> Correct. Oh, right. I keep forgetting we're not talking to just 12 people that yeah, I know. You're talking to the world. Holy crap. <laughs> <laughs> I, did a, I did an interview with a, a drummer. <laughs> She's laughing right now because she's going through books. I'm sorry. I know this. You can cut this out if you want, but it's whatever. She just came across a music business book and she just started laughing. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe, maybe the whole podcast should just be you reading from the music business book. (laughs) (laughs) So the new record is out. Right. Exactly. Yes. Uh, Basically I, I did not intend to record a record. I've been wanting to do this Mancini plays Mancini no relation project for like only about 12 years now. Right. And uh, every year I get closer and closer to just deciding to not do it at all. <laughs> so, <laughs> but um, that was going to be my project for the second half of this year. But then um, I, I thought to myself, you know, I'm playing LACMA again and I usually play there every two years. Mm-hmm. And, um, and what ends up happening is I release a record the year that I'm not playing there. <laughs> so <laughs> this time around, I decided I'm going to keep the show really simple. I'm going to just have organ trio because I know that's going to sound good in outdoor setting. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then I decided, well, if I'm going to do that, that's a fairly easy project to record because, you know, I do um, my own recordings as well. Mm-hmm. So... Um, uh, that, then I just said, well, screw it. I'll just make this record for this particular LACMA show. Mm-hmm. And uh, in my typical fashion, that would mean that I would normally like make the record, do the LACMA show, send out an email a week later, let people know that I got this record, and then immediately abandon the project and start working on something new. <laughs> but, <laughs> that's the Mancini MO right there. <laughs> that's the Mancini method. That's right. Um, and uh, Afton said to me, uh, for those listening who do not know, Afton is my girlfriend, yes. my life partner, my dedicated schmoofy. Vocalist extraordinaire. And vocalist extraordinaire. Yes. Um, she said, hey, honey, why don't you um, do like two gigs to support the release of the record? And, and you said, said, that's that's for losers. That's nuts. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> Uh, and then two turned into three and now I've done four. And wow. so basically like once a month I'm doing a, a show that I really kind of emphasize the organ trio. I'm yeah. staying with the same instrumentation. I'm staying with the same people when, mm-hmm. when they're available, yeah. which is Ty Bailey and Tina Raymond. Right. And, um, uh, and so we have a show coming up this Sunday at the E-Spot Lounge, uh, which is above Vitello's. Mm-hmm. Owned by Sheila E. Used to be owned by Sheila E. Oh, Apparently, it's no longer owned by Sheila E. Okay, it is. It is a, but it is an independent entity um, that just happens to be above Vitello's. Right. It's somehow related, but I think that they function as their own entity. Yeah, yeah. And um, the food is great, mm-hmm. which you know, not everybody could say that about Vitello's twenty years ago. That's true. Apparently. Yeah. Um. There's that woman who got shot there, and apparently it was because <laughs> <laughs> she, she decided that she would, you know, go eat there, apparently. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's a ringing endorsement for Vitello. So, you know. <laughs> the food used to suck, and somebody got shot there, but now it's great. 
but now it's great. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and they, uh, you, well, wait, you played a show with me there. Yeah. You and me and right. Ty. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. So you know, they changed the room around and everything, right. and it sounds great. And right. yeah, it's pretty cool. So you touched on on your uh, your co conspirators in in the trio, Ty Bailey on organ and Tina Raymond on drums, uh, mm-hmm. both of whom I have extremely high regard for. And you and I, like, I I feel like we kind of like fell in love with the B three at the same time, and it was it was because of Ty. Like we both started playing with Ty. Um, yeah. And, yeah. uh, and I, I had a renaissance with the B3. Okay. I, um, but I did, I've done other organ trio recordings. That's right. With uh, Brian Charette before that. Mm-hmm. And then long before that, like many, many years ago, back when I was living in New York, me and my friend Dave Berger, who's a drummer and, um, a guy by the name of Matthias Bublat. That's a hell uh, of a handle. Yeah, <laughs> he uh, he is an amazing. He 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 actually was um, originally a boogie woogie piano player, hmm. and won all these awards for boogie woogie piano. So he's got this really dangerous left hand, and he's left handed. So his left hand stuff on organ was slamming. Right. So we did a trio thing, and then added some horns in post production. Yeah. And that that was, I mean, that was like over 10 years ago and that was like all music of Horace Silver um, and then yeah I revisited it with uh, Brian revisited mm-hmm. it revisited Re- recidivism Reci- <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then this and then yeah and then we started you introduced me to Ty right okay it's all and coming back now plays his natural born ass off yes he does he's just an amazing Amazing cat. I remember talking to Christina about we were we were having this conversation about how Christina's my wife and, and she doesn't really like the, the saxophone, especially tenor sax, doesn't really care for it. Uh, and she was like, you know, come to think of it, I, I really don't dig the organ neither. And I said, yeah, but you love going to see Ty play. And she was like, well, well, Ty's just a whole experience. <laughs> <laughs> no truer words have ever been said. About yeah, him. yeah. Um, but like you and you and Ty play, play so well together because I, I feel like you both, um, you both have a a kind of second level that you get to, you know, if you're, if you're feeling it and you really feed off each other, um, was, is, is there much of a precedent for the, the organ vibes, uh, pairing or combination? Um, I wouldn't, not as much as other instruments, obviously, like the guitar and the Hammond are mm-hmm. sort of the, that's the, the match made in heaven. Um, so, you know, Bobby did, uh, Bobby did a, re- Bobby Hutcherson did a record with Larry Young, I'm pretty sure, mm-hmm. it was Larry, like back in the day. Um, he did another one uh, just a couple of years before he passed with Joey DeFrancesco. Okay. Um there's some like uh mid-century sort of tiki exotica stuff hmm. that is vibes and uh and Hammond organ. Yeah. But in terms of like a straight ahead jazz format, I don't think there's a a lot of that that has happened. Right. Um and not I think that the that in order for that combination to really work the vibraphonist has to really embrace the um, the sound of the vibes with the organ because it's 
I don't know. In my opinion, it's not just by hitting the vibes and the organ player playing. It sounds great. It's mm-hmm. like you kind of have to meet each other in the middle mm-hmm. because there are a lot of similarities in the way that the two instruments sound, but then there are also they're also very different. You know, I mean, the percussive aspect of the vibes, although the organ has percussion aspects to it too. Yeah, I was going to say both the vibes and the organ are it's it's like a combination of a of a percussive attack with a long sustain. Exactly. Um so that could that could go either way. That could be awesome or it could just be cacophonous nastiness. True. Yeah, true, true. You you got to you've got to pick your your places to play and 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 whatnot. Yeah. Um so uh it's a little tricky. I found it to be more tricky um writing the material for the record because uh, I write a lot of my stuff from the bass up. Mm-hmm. And uh, in my imagination, a lot of the bass is like a very independent line. Right. And so, um, and that doesn't necessarily always uh, translate with the, with the Hammond organ because yes, the ba- the, the, player is playing the bass with the left hand but <clears throat> it's also very much integrated into the whole sound of the like the more i watch ty play and ty is a hammond b3 organ player as mm-hmm. opposed to a pianist who also plays organ yeah the more i realize that actually the two manuals and the foot pedals are very much integrated and mm-hmm. so to write an independent bass line maybe isn't necessarily the best way to go about writing music for that particular group mm-hmm. so that was the biggest challenge to me Mm-hmm. It was not so much like playing along with the organ, but rather making sure that the material that I programmed for it was right for it. Right. You know? And how did the uh, how did the drums fit into this music that you've written and, and Tina specifically? Um, <clears throat> so Tina, I've played off and on with Tina for years, mm-hmm. and um, and then we we played a gig together um, uh, at the Falls. And she was the house drummer, and we were doing all my original music. And I just thought she dealt with the music in such a, like, kind of an interesting way uh, that I'd not heard other drummers deal with it, and that I'd not heard her deal with it the same way in in a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a bit of a, there was probably maybe like a two year period in between us doing some gigs together and then starting to play together again. And in that two years. Her, her whole like concept just grew so much. She's always been a great drummer, but I feel like her concept and her, 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 just the way that she deals with music grew a lot in those two years and really matched up with my music. So, um, I don't know, like the drums to me, I just like having drums. I love the sound of drums. I was a drummer. So most of my projects are going to have drums. Right. Um, so <clears throat> how does the instrument itself interact with the material? I wouldn't say that it's um it's anything groundbreaking uh but the way that um she plays it in particular I think is is what's special, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um and Ty, you know, to quote Christina, yeah, Ty is just a whole experience. I mean, you could put anything in front of the guy and he's going to make magic out of it right really right you know he's gonna bring energy out of it and and get the room uh invested <laughs> yeah exactly even like even if it's just like you know whispering on a little like um ballad or something he's just he's so deeply connected to everything he plays from one moment to the next that 
you can kind of, kind of can't help but be enthralled. Yeah, I, I had an experience when I when I began to play with Ty, and I'm wondering if you had the same experience or if you've seen Tina go through the same thing as a drummer. Um, when I when I started playing with him, for some reason, I just I stopped feeling the need to play anything complicated. For sure. Um, and and just like going along for the ride and playing time and being in the groove became like its own reward. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I think part of that has to do with Ty specifically, and part of that is just the nature of the B3. Um, yeah. But did, did, did you experience that? Um, yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. And, and that was another reason why I thought Tina would be a good choice, because I know that uh, first and foremost, she wants to play a, like a hugely supportive role. Mm-hmm. She does it in a very colorful way, too, which is very cool. Yeah. Because um, I think that there are some drummers uh, who uh, you do not file under this rank, um, but there are some drummers who, uh, when, they, when they are asked to play su- a supportive role, they do it almost begrudgingly. Mm-hmm. And so it's going to be either like you either get 100% of like everything that they have or – they're just going to play this supportive role and they're not going to put any life into it at all. Right. I feel like uh, you and Tina know how to play that supportive role, which the B3 kind of needs because there's so, so much going on, just yeah. one person doing so much stuff. Yeah. Um, but you also know how to do it in a way that is really colorful, full of life, uh, and... Um, and and like interesting, e- even though it, it maybe is not like you know an Elvin Jones approach to playing. Right, right. You know? Well, thank you, man. Any any time I'm in the same sentence as Tina Raymond, I'll I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and by the uh, way, for our listeners, T- Tina Raymond is a, an interviewee on on Working Drummer podcast. Her back in the sixty something episode, I believe, uh, back in the archives. But go to WorkingDrummer.net. You can check out the interview with Tina Raymond. She's cool. She's a smart little cookie too, boy. Yeah, for real. And the just the yoga and the whole like, yeah. And you know she's um, she she won a really uh, um, great um, teaching job down at um, L.A. City College now. That's right. I did. It's like about a that. highly competitive position as she down there were like doctorates i think there were like 530 submissions or something right right and she got it wow yeah well she deserves and she's it. doing really cool stuff she's because i've already played there and ty's already played there so she does like a music and uh, like an enrichment class or something like that mm-hmm. and um uh uh and she brings in musicians all different types of musicians to come in and play and demonstrate their instruments for for this class in, in an auditorium setting and uh, so she and I did it as a trio with Nate Light. Oh, cool! Before that, she did it with Ty. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she, yeah, she's doing some great stuff down there, man. I think she's going to really make a, a a pretty happening scene out of that. So you are a native of upstate New York and uh, graduate. You're not going to hold that against me, are you? Uh, well, yes, we are definitely. <laughs> That's <laughs> great. <laughs> um. But uh, you're a graduate of uh, Manhattan School of Music, correct? Mm-hmm. Talk about your college experience there. At Manhattan School of Music in particular? Yeah. Um, well, you know, I'd be happy to, but actually I feel like my, my more um, interesting, colorful, informative experiences were in my undergrad. 
to be quite honest. Where was your undergrad? Um, I went to, I started at Schenectady County Community College mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, in their music certificate program, which is like a precursor to their two-year degree because I couldn't even barely do like a double stroke roll. <laughs> I mean, I could play, <laughs> I could play Rush B-sides until the cops <laughs> With utter perfection, but like <laughs> anyway, um, but I couldn't. Yeah, I, I had no experience on any orchestral instruments, and the whole course of study there was orchestral. Okay, so, so this this uh, I, I realized I got a little bit ahead of my of myself because I wanted to ask you about the like you started out as a drummer, like most of us in high school, just playing drums and and yeah. being an idiot. Um, I'm dead. <laughs> uh, so your your uh, Schenectady College experience had to do with the transition from drums to vibes absolutely yeah. okay that's when i first started playing mallet instruments mm-hmm. um yeah i i couldn't even i mean studying drum set wasn't even an option in that program mm-hmm. um and so i took their music certificate program which didn't require any audition but i was able to take lessons on orchestral percussion instruments for a year mm-hmm. and be in choir and do music theory and music history classes and stuff like that. And then I was, uh, um, and then I could opt to audition to get into the music program. Okay. Which was a two year program. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah, I got my, I got my letter. I did the audition. Uh, it was, you know, probably one of the worst auditions in history. Uh, <laughs> and I got a letter a couple of weeks later saying that my, my audition was deemed marginally successful. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I kept the letter because I was like, wow, that is some wording. Right there. <laughs> That's like the old George Carlin bit about uh, when, when uh, you're, you're told that your child is minimally exceptional. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly what it was, marginally acceptable, which basically means you suck, but we fill out our percussion department. <laughs> you, you, have had, two, you have two hands and ten fingers, so <laughs> exactly. join us. Right. Yeah, and from what we can tell, it looks like you'd be able to afford a pair of mallets. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was bad. so what was the what was the moment? Was there a moment when you like started playing mallet instruments and you were like, whoa, this is it? Or was it a gradual kind of uh, get-to-know-you process between you and the vibes? Um, the vibes were the last one that I wanted to practice. Mm. Uh, I, I I hated it. I felt like, you know, I mean, you got to stand there with one foot up on the pedal and the other, and you're leaning on one leg, and it's like, you know, the bars are all the same color. There's no differentiation between the two keyboards because they're both on the same uh, playing surface. and. Right. It's just it was just the biggest pain in the butt instrument to practice, uh, and plus everybody liked playing marimba because it's like the most gorgeous sounding instrument, right? Yeah. I mean, you you just play a scale and you're like, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> the vibes like clunk 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 clunk, or they're ringing together, you know? Yeah. So no, I was not like in love with vibes immediately. I was, in fact, I was uh, convinced at the end of my my second year that I would, um. I would then finish up my undergrad and go study with Lee Howard Stevens and be like marimba guy, you know. Mm-hmm. That's what I thought for sure I wanted to do. I never even dreamt that it was possible to be a working jazz musician because I was 
I came from upstate New York where everybody who was a jazz musician also taught at a high school, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so except unless they were bass players, <laughs> <laughs> those guys, they God, would, those yeah. fucking guys. Oh, they do like four gigs a day. I know. The everywhere. Three. Everywhere you go. Like LA, Atlanta, every city, the bass players are just horking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally balling. So yeah. Um the, uh but anyway, I so yeah, the the idea of becoming a, a full time jazz musician was like, what? But my friend, uh, who remains one of my best friends to this day, Lou Smaldone, who was a bass player. Mm-hmm. He was actually in that program as a trombone player, but he loved playing bass and he loved jazz. And he, more than anything, loved to get together to jam. Mm-hmm. It was always just like, I mean, like that was his, his saying was like, want to jam, dude? Want to jam? Want to jam? <laughs> so he would make me grab the vibes and we'd go into a practice room and we'd play a little duo, either him on trombone or him on bass and me on vibes. And, and it was just awful. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was terrible, but that didn't stop me from trying to book gigs <laughs> as a vibraphone in so, in Syracuse. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we started. Uh, well, Schenectady, Zach. Right. Sorry. Sorry. Not Syracuse. Right. Completely different worlds. Totally different worlds. Actually, you dropped a person in the middle of Syracuse, and then you dropped them in the middle of Schenectady. They wouldn't know if they were in a different city or not. <laughs> They very, they're very much alike. All those upstate New York cities, yeah, are all kind of post-industrial. Rust, now let's try to cultural thing. Other, right. Yeah, rust, yeah. right? Um, but I, I managed to get it together. You know, I mean, I practiced a lot. I had a, a teacher who I just found out passed away this earlier this year, mm. um, and he was. Uh, whew, I don't mean to speak ill of the dead, but man, this guy was a real son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> just to you or in general? Just everybody. Oh man. Everybody. I mean nobody was nobody was safe. You were safe if you practiced. Right. And you came into your lesson prepared. Right. Which to me that was a concept that I had never even knew existed like so I'm going to take a lesson and you're going to tell me to do stuff and then I have to come back next week having actually done it and got <laughs> better and then we'll start again you know what i mean like that I was like, wait what that's but he was yeah i mean he he would just like you know the first five minutes into the lesson he would know whether or not i was lying on my practice journal right you know right i had practiced 48 hours that week and he's like you did not practice 48 hours this week you didn't do anything this week and i can tell and so now i'm going to spend the next 55 minutes berating you and dehumanizing <laughs> you and then we're going to go directly into a 3 hour percussion ensemble rehearsal yeah that was my every monday for 2 years in a row so you got your ass kicked Whew, big time yeah i guess you know the saying goes you can either inspire or enforce hmm he was not hugely inspirational <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Yeah, he was rough, but but he he like prepared me. Yeah, I mean the whole the whole schooling experience, and mm-hmm. it was just an associate's degree. At the end, I felt like I had gone through three tours of Nam, <laughs> but I was I had only an associate's degree, and I still had two more years to finish up my my undergrad. Right, but literally, man, those those years like prepared me for all of my schooling. So by the time I got to Manhattan School of Music, I felt it was actually pretty cushy. Right. Right. And that was my master's degree. Yeah. 
And at that point, were you still were you still doing the marimba thing, the classical thing, or were you like full on into jazz vibes at that point? I was full on into jazz vibes when I when I auditioned for uh, so after Schenectady, I went to SUNY Potsdam, which is the State University of New York at Potsdam. Mm They have a renowned music school up there, more renowned for making music teachers than making music performers, but they have a really great faculty. Um, so you can learn to play if you practice and dedicate yourself in that regard. Um, uh, so when I went there, I did a music studies major, which is basically like a prep degree for uh, a master's degree. Mm-hmm. A lot of research, like emphasis on research. But I did a jazz concentration, which meant that if I was going to take a music history course, it was going to be a jazz history course. And if I was taking an oral training course, it was jazz oral training. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, and then I had some electives. So I took like a JS Bach course and this and that. But, but when I got to my second bit of my undergrad, that was when I was like pretty sure I was going to be doing jazz. Um, and I remember uh, the um, New York hard bop quintet came up to SUNY Potsdam because mm-hmm. the drummer uh, used to be a SUNY Potsdam alum and he was a professional drummer down in New York City and I was like oh wow you can like do this you know <laughs> and they had Ralph Lama and Joe Magnarelli was in the band it was like a really Bim Strasberg on bass you know have you ever heard of Bim Strasberg no Whew, the guy's so killing the so band was killing awesome. yeah so killing <laughs> um and I was like whoa like I I want to move to New York City, you know? mm. And so then kind of naturally led me to look for schools in New York. Mm-hmm. And at the time, the new school was a little touchy-feely for my taste because I had been through such like kind of hardcore almost, even though it was undergrad, like hardcore conservatory type training. Mm-hmm. And um, they were talking about like, you know, creating your own majors. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I don't need anybody powder on my ass. <laughs> so Manhattan music was like the one that stuck out to me and that was the only school I auditioned for for my graduate degree because hmm. I figured if I wasn't going to get in there then I just would move to New York anyway you know right right and they accepted me <laughs> too late now <laughs> I went from marginally acceptable prior <laughs> to getting a, a scholarship at Manhattan School of Music so something happened yeah in those four years that you know pushed me right right um, I've practiced since then. <laughs> You've just been coasting. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this this leads me to to one of the reasons I wanted to get you on the podcast, which is like a, a year or two ago. Um, I think fueled by by many a cocktail, you and I got into a heated debate about uh, the role of of music in college and and what a degree in music should prepare you to do. Um, Christina was involved in that debate. Oh yeah, she's got opinions on on this. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, but I, I wanted to touch on that because what what do you feel your experience at especially a place like Manhattan School of Music like what was what was the emphasis at a place like that was it on artistic development or or professional um, you know savvy right okay well first of all like. Okay, so to directly answer that question, I felt like it was both. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think that if I had gone for my master's degree uh, in jazz at, like, say Oberlin, which is a, an amazing school, 
um, that I would have gotten a lot of artistic development, but I don't know how much professional development would have been involved. Mm -hmm. But because the school, because Manhattan School of Music was, you know, 20 blocks away from what then was Augie's and now is Smoke, I was able to pretty much every single night of the week walk down to Augie's, hang out, and for just throwing three bucks into a tips jar, I could watch Chris Potter uh, sitting in with Joe Farnsworth and Scott Colley and mm-hmm. Jean-Michel Pilk on like a Wednesday, just some <laughs> off Wednesday at August. Right. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's like Joel Fromm would all of a sudden walk in. Yeah. Joe Magnarelli would walk in and they would just like, it would, and then it would be like this six piece band doing like deep Horace Silver cuts with like no music in front of them. Right. Completely memorized intro, outro, all the right chords, like all the rhythmic hits, just and just calling these tunes, like, you know, like we would call Stella by Starlight. They're calling like these heavy tunes. And I, I was like, oh, this is the, this is the level that you have to be at mm. just to get in. You know what I mean? And right. then you can start crafting things the way you want to craft them. But there's like this mountain of stuff that needs to be learned and, and then performed. Mm-hmm. And then you need to find people of like minds that can do it with you. And, you know, it's like there was all that. It was all of a sudden the task became kind of daunting. And mm-hmm. that sort of is what made me hunker down not just on my artistic development, but on actually just the nuts and bolts of learning a bunch of tunes, mm-hmm. making sure that I can play at 320 BPM. Because for them to come in and call Love for Sale and go, one, two, and like burn down Love for Sale for 10 minutes at 380 BPM right. was like, that's a, just a Tuesday night. Yeah. You know? it's like, they're not, they don't prepare for that. They just right. come in cold. And so I thought, oh, wow, I really have a lot of shit. I got to get together, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so all that time that I thought I had been like developing and this and that in my undergrad, I realized that I was really just like getting the meat and potatoes together. Mm-hmm. So it, <clears throat> I think that uh, Manhattan School of Music supplied both of those things for me. Um, thankfully, I had more of a nuts and bolts um, fundamentals kind of experience at Manhattan School of Music than some of my colleagues did. Hmm. Some of my colleagues had very kind of like um what I like a more of an artistic experience there. Mm-hmm. Like playing a lot. You know, I mean as a vice player, I was not in any of the big bands. Right. So, you know, I I I just was kind of like left up to my own devices. And so I took that time to just learn a bunch of tunes, learn all my scales and all my arpeggios and blah 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 and all that stuff mm-hmm. um whereas like and then in my improv class was just it was more of an applied theory class so mm-hmm. i still am learning from the stuff that's in that notebook like some 15 20 years later you know yeah um so so i yeah i would say it was like because of its physical location manhattan school of music supplied both a really hardcore artistic background nuts and nuts and bolts also uh um uh, uh, gave me a great perspective on what's happening professionally in the hub of the jazz world and in the world really Mm -hmm. which is york 
right, uh, right. at the time was New York. You know, now I feel like there's a, a shift happening. But like, still, if you want to really just like learn how to go play jazz, you just go to New York. Yeah. And yeah. that's why I was like not too concerned about whether or not I got into Manhattan School of Music or not, um, because I knew I was going to move there anyway, because that's where I needed to go to really get my ass handed to me and, and learn what to do on yeah. a high level, you know? Yeah. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. And then, so but that, that night we were talking about whether or not a school should be responsible for preparing you for the professional aspects of, of managing a career. Yeah. Right. That was Which part I don't of that they, was, they should be responsible for that. Sorry. Go say that again. I don't think that that a school should be responsible for that. Why not? Because there's enough to do in school already just learning how to get your stuff together on your instrument. Mm. I think if you want to go into music business, then you need to take a music business course. Mm. I think that that should be an elective. I didn't want to go to school and take a music business course. I wanted to go to school and live that two-year artistic bubble Right. which was the last opportunity to live that lifestyle that I could, that I could have before I went out into the world and had to start making a living. Right. Um, plus the people that I feel do the best are the ones who came up with a way of doing it for themselves. Mm. They figured it out out of necessity. Right. These are the smartest, most industrious people mm-hmm. who take whatever's thrown at them and turn it into something, you know, plus Imagine if I had spent all this time and energy learning all that there was to learn about the music business in at, at Manhattan School of Music, which is a conservatory, which really is just learn to play your instrument and when you get out there, figure it out on your own mm-hmm. kind of place. Yeah. Then eight years later, YouTube and social networking and all of that information, all of that knowledge that I learned is – kaput because the whole game changed right you see yeah so i feel like the fact that i have to kind of like improvise every single day how am i going to manage my career today Mm -hmm. is actually better than being given all those tools you know what i mean yeah so and I just think that uh, I, I think that the you're saying yeah. that a, you're saying that like a, a music business course or a music business degree would would give you some preconceived notions about how you're supposed to manage your career and and make you less flexible today. It feels to me as though yes, a lot of those degrees and a lot of those types of programs are stuck in theory, rhetoric, and history, mm. and have very little to do with how things need to go when you get out of school. Mm-hmm. Very theoretical. Because business, it, in any form, is liquid and living and changing all the time. Mm-hmm. And as I said, especially with the music industry, the people that do it the best are the ones who come up with a whole a new way of doing it that works for them. Right. right. You know? You familiar with this band Voltec? Yeah. Yeah, they came up with a pretty interesting business plan. Yeah. Which I'll let your listeners check that out on their own. Wolf, Wolfpack, V-U-L-F-P-E-C-K, which I guess is German for Wolfpack. Right. I think so. Brilliant guys. Brilliant guys. Cool. I think a, another part of that conversation we had was was the fact that your um, 
actually both of our college experiences in a, in a collegiate jazz program were obviously very jazz centric. Um, and uh, the question, uh, a question that I grapple with is what, what responsibility do collegiate music programs have to train musicians in something other than classical or jazz? Well, you see, this is, that's based on the, on the precept that everybody that goes to school for, to study a certain discipline wants to get out of school and then try and make a living at it. Mm-hmm. I would, I, I think that a, a student should be able to go into a program. I think that a student should be able to go into a program and, and study a program in its purest form without it being adulterated by any sort of business concepts whatsoever so that they can learn the art form. That's the purpose mm-hmm. of a conservatory, you know? So, um, and then the other thing is, I think that if you can play jazz, you can play any form of music. Mm. Jazz musicians are the best musicians on the face of the earth. Like a highly trained, super tuned in jazz musician is going to be a, one of the greatest musicians you're, you're going to encounter in this day and age mm-hmm. in the world, in my opinion. Yeah. They're going to be a complete musician. They'll, they're going to be able to read their asses off. Mm-hmm. They're going to be able to improvise, which probably means that they're going to be able to compose to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. Their theory is going to be insane. Their ability to play in time is going to be insane. You know, this is going to make them the fullest possible musician. So, other than like training to learn how to be an or uh, like a super high level orchestral musician, which is a very not narrow pathway, but it's it's a f- super focused pathway mm-hmm. leading toward one end goal ultimately. Other than doing that, uh, and, and I feel a lot of those people are not necessarily complete musicians. I may be talking out of my ass. This has my, been my experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that uh, uh, other than that, like yeah, if you train to become a jazz musician, then you and you can't get out and 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 hit the kick drum on one and the snare on two and play a pop tune, then there's something wrong with your programming to begin with. <laughs> so you lay that at the feet of the musician, not at the school they went to. Exactly. Yeah. The school offers what they offer. You don't mm-hmm. have to go there. Nobody's putting a gun to your head. You have to go there. Mm-hmm. If you go there for a jazz degree, yeah, you should be learning jazz Right, you know, yeah. I would have been pissed off if I had to go learn some stupid fucking pop song. Sorry, <laughs> I'm just I'm thinking of these programs now, like USC <clears throat> and UCLA, <laughs> and they have they have degrees in pop music, a yeah. degree in pop music <laughs> because pop music is getting harder. <sighs> study it in school. No, if anything, it's getting simpler and more dumbed down mm-hmm. there isn't even any decent lyrical content in pop music so what are you going to school and spending thirty thousand dollars a year learning yeah. in a pop music program this pop music program for me was my record collection hmm. which was a hell of a lot less than thirty thousand dollars because every single record was given to me by my brother <laughs> they thrown at me from across the room learn this <laughs> <laughs> you know you're going to be a drummer. You have to be able to play all seven of these Genesis records, all of these Rush records, all of these Led Zeppelin records, you know, and then talk to me. Right. Don't talk until you learn them all. That was my pop music education. <laughs> it sounds like as good as any. You know, yeah, I mean, sure. Why not? 
you know, but like, but jazz is, I, I think, a more, a more veiled art form now because there isn't that, uh, you know, when back in like the 50, the 40s and the 50s and stuff like that, it was more of a mentorship. You know, mm-hmm. if you could show to a band leader or, 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 or someone who is better than you that you could play, they would sort of take you under their wing. You know, they'd get you a gig, they'd teach you some scales, and this is, the, this is how you get this sound, this is how you get this sound, or they learned it by ear. Mm-hmm. But, um, but it's a much more veiled art form in terms of learning it these days. So, yeah, you, you know, going to school makes sense. Yeah. For, yeah. for a pop. No, and, Christina, Christina made another great point about this recently because she and I were uh, having this conversation about how lately I haven't been playing very much jazz. I've been playing more pop, funk, blues, all that stuff. Um, and, you know, I, I made some kind of offhanded comment about how, you know, I'm not I'm not really using my jazz degree. Um, and I was kind of half serious about it. But she said, no, you totally are, because all of the jazz you learned, all of the jazz you played uh causes you to bring an ear and a sensitivity to this other music that a lot of times people don't approach with much sensitivity. Um, Absolutely. And it's not about like, you know, the sensitivity of your sound or whatever. It's just kind of your musical antenna um, Mm -hmm. and your awareness of, of what's going on around you. So um, that really, that struck a chord with me when, when she said that. Um, and yeah, of, I mean that's part of what I'm. What I mean when I when I say that, like a a really highly trained um, uh, jazz musician with a lot of experience is going to be one of the best musicians in the room. Yeah, because because of that reason as well. You know, I mean, I mean like you know, basically, if you are playing a, a you know a pop gig, even if it's like fairly complex pop music, like you know Steely Dan, I would consider to be fairly complex pop oriented music, right? Mm-hmm. You pretty much just need to know your part. You need to play it in time. Mm-hmm. You know, you need to have a. But they play massive stadiums, so as a drummer, you just have to hit the drums. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not a there's not a wide range of dynamics that's that you have to do. But <clears throat> when you're when you have the experience of playing in intimate clubs, which rock players never play intimate scenarios that that's not true they there there are plenty of small rock clubs uh and but they blues. don't play them as small clubs they still bash the shit out of them. <laughs> right <laughs> you know i mean i play I, I played drums when i first moved to town in a couple different projects and uh one of the one of the places we played was the mint and i was astonished at how loud we were playing in the mm-hmm. mint it's like are we really gonna Play the, I mean, these poor people are sitting right here. <laughs> you play this loud, you know? It was like yeah. so loud. It was a kick drum mic and a snare mic. And I'm like, dude, I can hit the snare plenty loud. Don't worry about it. They're going to hear it. Right. Nope. Mic on the snare, but, you know. So, yeah, I think that there is, there is like you said, you're, you, you fine-tune that musical antenna mm-hmm. when you're a jazz musician. You have to. Yeah. If you want the music to sound good. If you don't, you don't. And there are some jazz musicians who – play so they don't really care how the music sounds <laughs> so i'm not saying that ja- all jazz musicians are great all pop musicians are crap it's not true so how long were you in new york city after college for eight years and what was your experience there as a as a gig and musician it was a pain in the ass man. <laughs> <laughs> major pain in the ass you know if i was if i was a trumpet player 
and I had to throw a trumpet and maybe, ooh, maybe a flugelhorn over my shoulder <laughs> um, and get on the train, it would have been a totally different experience. I probably would still be living there, actually, mm-hmm. if that were the case. And I could just bring my instrument in, and if I knew somebody, go up and sit in on one tune, and it would be you know, just like a very simple, innocuous thing. But if you're going to drag your vibes into a place and you're going to try and sit in on vibes, <laughs> it's like a whole thing. You know what I mean? It's a production. Yeah, exactly. You know, and and you get like this, you get these two very polar opposite responses when you bring a vibraphone into a room. You get like half the people who are the non musicians in the room are going, "Ooh, wow, what's that thing?" And then you get the other half that are musicians going, "Oh, for heaven's sake!" <laughs> so right. I didn't have, I didn't drag my vibes into too many sit in type situations, you mm-hmm. know. Um, plus, I had to own a car. Owning a car in New York City just makes your life exponentially more complicated. Mm-hmm. Because just, you know, you have to find a place to park the dang thing. Mm-hmm. In my neighborhood, there was a 10 year waiting list for the one parking garage that was available. <laughs> Even then, it was $485 a month. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, man. And this is up in the ghetto. Right. Right. Where everybody was a car service driver. Oh, my God. Yeah, they all drove Lincolns. So it was just like, it was impossible. The kids on my street would like, they would, if a parking spot opened up, they would just hang out in in the parking spot. And then they would charge people to park there. Or they would just be, or they they wouldn't even charge you. Yeah. They would like, get out of here. No, this is my father's parking spot. Right, right. One time I tried to pull in and I almost got killed. So... (sighs) Like, okay, that's not going to happen, you know. See, this is Uh, another reason I wanted to talk to you because we all hear about, like, you know, as as young musicians, what you hear about New York is like, oh, you can just walk a couple of blocks and pay a couple of bucks and see the most amazing jazz in the world. And that's all true. But they don't hear about the 485 bucks a month just for a parking space. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, In one year, I spent 10 grand on my car. (sighs) Oh. Oh, it's and the car was worth two thousand dollars. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, yeah. Um, between parking tickets, I got towed twice that year. Um, you know, broken windows just from vandalism. Mm-hmm. Um, the insurance—it was insane. Right. Ten grand, you know, one right. year. I was doing my taxes, and I was like what (laughs) seriously no wonder i'm broke you know so the logistical Um, experience of new york obviously sounded like a nightmare total nightmare what was the musical experience well unfortunately the logistical experience informed the musical experience (laughs) 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 um uh no i you know i grew a lot in in my time in new york Mm -hmm. uh and actually, when I say the logistical experience informed the musical experience, I mean it because I was so stressed out and so like on the edge all the time that it was reflected in my playing. Mm-hmm. And my playing was very aggressive, very like front, you know, from a musical standpoint, front end of the beat, like constantly just like, just tearing right. through shit, you know, right. like voracious approach to playing. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't matter what I was playing. I had a Brazilian band at one point in time, and it was like all these chill Brazilian guys, you know? Right. And we're playing like <laughs> Desifinado, and I'm playing 30-second notes over <laughs> Desifinado. <laughs> the guitar player was like, man, you sound great. 
But underneath it, it was, why are you playing all those freaking notes? <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, but it, that actually w- was helpful when I moved to LA because I went to like one jam session I played and I had a gig at the end of the week because they were just like, holy crap, who the hell are you? Like, what? what? You know, <laughs> this guy I, means business. Yeah, fresh, Jesus. fresh from the from the cut, and I was just like, "Let me add it," you know. Right, and, right. And, and and a lot has changed musically in LA in ten years. Yeah, talk about that. How much music has changed in LA in ten yeah, years? Because you've been there about ten years. Yeah, I moved here in 06. Yeah. So what was what was the landscape like when you got there, and and what is it like now? Um. Wow. Well, I I mean. I don't know how aptly I can describe the landscape. I can just say that like now peop like young hot shit musicians are graduating college and moving to LA first as opposed mm-hmm. to New York. Mm-hmm. I think that LA is is different from New York in that um the jazz scene in New York is somewhat insulated against other forms of music. Mm. Um <clears throat> so it's it, it isn't it isn't as heavily uh, but then again you know look i haven't lived there in, t- in 10 years so I, I i could be talking on my ass for all i know um it doesn't seem as though it's as uh integrated into other forms of music as uh or influenced by other forms of music as jazz in la is mm-hmm you know, yeah. When I was, I was actually, I just made a joke the other night when I was hanging out with a bunch of guys, and um, and and I said something like, uh, I can't remember. We were talking to a percussionist, and um, who lived in New York right around the same time that I was living in New York, and it was a bass player was there, and 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 they, and, and the bass player said, "So did you guys know each other in New York?" And I was like. <sighs> Well, a, a percussionist in New York. What do I look like? I'm from LA. Oh, um, <laughs> because there's this whole like movement of like percussionists now replacing drummers. Hmm. Yeah, in bands, right? Because the 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 jazz that's being played in LA is influenced by a lot of other forms of music, and sometimes a well-rounded percussionist who's not playing a um, your standard drum set, mm-hmm. but knows jazz. Uh, someone like, say, like a Brad Dutz yeah. or a James Yoshizawa or Pete Corpella. Pete Corpella. These these guys are are starting to play more and are being used in in musical settings that are a little bit more like kind of a straight ahead, where straight ahead jazz tunes are being called and stuff like that. Because there's su- such a, a mis- mishmash of, of music that's kind of coming together and that mishmash is being reflected in the jazz scene. It seems to me as though in LA, in New York, <clears throat> you've got your scenes and they're pretty heavily insulated. And they can be because there's 100,000 musicians to support each type of scene. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. So the straight ahead jazz scene in New York, if you want to learn how to play bop still to this day, you go to New York. Right, right. Maybe Philly. Mm-hmm. Philly probably has pretty, a pretty, pretty strong um, tradition going there for for Bob. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because like they're still doing it. Yeah, in New York, and it's part of that passed down lineage. So it's not like you're learning it 
you know, I, it's, it's, it's like a very, it seems like a very direct line of influence among straight ahead jazz and, you know, and then even there's like a free jazz scene in New York Mm -hmm. and uh, these people don't play other forms of music, right? (laughs) Like free jazz music. Right. Right. Um, so actually that was kind of the one thing because I have musical ADD. Mm-hmm. So I'm like you, you had have. <laughs> so let me let me clarify. Yeah. Um yeah, I I have musical ADD. I it's part of the reason why like staying with a project for more than two gigs is out of I'm like what? Why would I do that? Right. I want to do some other things. So one of the things that I felt like I really benefited from when I was in New York was the fact that one day I'd be playing a gig with my Brazilian group Another day, I'd be playing a gig with a straight-ahead bop, like five-piece bop band. Um, I did a ton of free jazz improv. Mm-hmm. I had I was in a couple of groups that were a lot of fun. One of which I was I was in. I don't know if you're familiar with Butch Morris. Um, Butch Morris was a trumpet player who invented this large ensemble style of free improvisation called conduction. Hmm. where he used um, baton and hand signals to dictate to the musicians different modes of playing. Wow. But the musicians came up with the material on, on a spontaneous basis. Right. It was really cool. Conduction. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which, so I was in like one of the last few incarnations of his ensemble before he passed away. Hmm. And I didn't even realize it at the time because it's just a buddy of mine called and said, hey, Butch is looking for a vibes player. And I was like, okay, cool. Who's Butch? I didn't even know <laughs> how hardcore <laughs> this shit was, you know? Um, so, and then, and then from there I met, uh, I had a, a clarinet player that was in that group formed a trio with me and a cello player. And so we had like this clarinet, cello vibes, like kind of noise castra <laughs> thing, thing going on. And, um, that was a lot of fun. And so I played at the Stone a bunch, and the Stone is the place that's owned by John Zorn down right, in the right, stage. Right. And that's like that's like the blue note for free jazz. Right. You know? And I played there a bunch of times. Yeah. You know? So I mean it sounds like like there are like you said, sort of insular circles in, in New York. Um and there's there's infrastructure and there are rules. Uh, kind of yeah within each one of those things and my my impression of LA which i i think you're reinforcing is that there the rules are kind of being written as everybody goes and that's for every walk of life in LA i think people who want to um you know kind of write their own script pun intended blah, uh <laughs> you know the west coast is a, is a great place to do that yeah and i think historically it always has been that way mm-hmm. especially for the arts yeah, you know the whole like Hollywood was founded by a bunch of East Village script writers. Mm-hmm. They came from New York, out here, right? Because it was cheaper to make movies. There was just more space. Um, so yeah, it, it it's and they could kind of like do their own thing. You know, there's there. I think that that is the tradition of LA, mm-hmm. artistically speaking. Is like come here. Um, and, and do your own thing. The people that I think are doing the best are those that also, uh, in addition to having the creativity and the artistic freedom to, to kind of find their own voice, these are also people who have, um, 
a heavy background in some type of a tradition mm-hmm. as well. So those are the ones who seem to be most successful at it. Right. You know? So it's right. not just kind of like a touchy feely free for all kind of thing. It's like if you have a good a good structural background in whatever it is you do, and you're also looking for a place to to kind of like find yourself. Yeah. And cross over a bunch of different uh, disciplines and genres, then this is a great place for it, and it's perfect for me mm-hmm. in that regard. You yeah. Know? And and so to be honest, like as I got closer to the end of my time in New York, I was already reaching out and um looking for somewhere to somewhere else to be. Yeah. Really, yeah, I was. Yeah. I I knew I was getting sick and tired of of um of just the grind there you know what i mean and yeah. and, it was, and it was starting to impact my artistic experience there negatively mm-hmm. and i thought well why be in new york if you're not going to be able to take take everything away from it that you can artistically because it's not like it's a beautiful place it is a beautiful place in some regards now i go back and i'm able to see the beauty right but when i was there i was just like i was just like god i i can't even I mean, I guess it was probably the depression talking. (laughs) (laughs) So speaking of your musical ADD, um, you are always involved in a huge number and a huge variety of musical projects, both as a leader and as a sideman. Um, so talk about, uh, a few of those projects, a few of the highlights over the, over the last few years. Um, and I also want to hear about the, the various drummers in those projects and, and how you feel, uh, the drummer is, is able to influence a project, how you curate personnel for the various projects you do. Mm-hmm. That last part is, um, is of most interest to me, I think, um, because, I know so many great drummers mm-hmm. and all of them in, <clears throat> in my opinion, I mean, they all have different strengths, which I think interact with me really well in different ways. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when I was putting together the, the project with Brian Charette, the, for the first organ project, yeah, I instantly thought of Andy Sinisi because I knew I wanted to do, a lot of these um, kind of pop-influenced pop grooves. Mm-hmm. And Andy is a great jazz musician as well, but his ability to meld those pop feels and, and, and his, just his, his super deep knowledge of jazz tunes, yeah. the genre of jazz, pardon me, well, I was cross, was like <laughs> the perfect person to have for that thing because – we were doing like samba disco grooves right. and, and like backbeat grooves and stuff like that. And it just, his sound was perfect for it. And and then I also knew that we could swing and he would be on top of that as well, you know? Right. So, um, uh, and I was, I, I, and I've always loved playing with Andy and Andy and I go back, like we met in 95. Yeah. Yeah. Almost 20 years ago back now. Back in the old country. More than 20 years ago. Yeah, back in the right. <laughs> um, <clears throat> on a uh, strange little gig out on, on Fire Island, it's like poolside <laughs> jazz quartet thing. Um, and uh, and we instantly 
like vibed off each other. We were like, oh yeah. Yeah. You know, at the time he was going to Berkeley. So I didn't bump into him again until he started going to NYU. Um, and we played as much as we could in New York. Once again, total insular concept about New York. Unless Andy and I reached out to each other, we've never crossed paths. Right. We played at the same places all the time, mm -hmm. but he was with this crew and I was with that crew, you know? Yeah. Um, also, I think when people move to New York, they, you know, like the Berkeley guys stick with the Berkeley people. Right. Manhattan school music people stay with Manhattan school music people. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just kind of a weird thing. But, um, anyway, so, um, I'm, I'm, I've got this trio. It's not my trio, actually. The, the bass player, um, put it together. Uh, bass player's name is Bruce Lett. Did you play with Bruce Lett at all while I, you were here? I never did. No. So, um, Bruce plays with I'm mean, Bruce plays constantly. He's playing all around town all the time. He's a bass player for Ernie Watts currently. Mm -hmm. Uh has been for like the past ten years or something like that. Um he and I played gigs out in Ventura together, and then um he decided that he wanted to put a trio together of him, me, and Brad Dutes. On percussion. On percussion, yeah. Sort of this weird amalgam drum kit yeah you know? and so and like when you're trading it's like playing with the entire spike jones <laughs> you know yeah, yeah. like slide whistles and cranks and bones and like it's just it's nutty but it's done on a super high artistic level there's like nothing can't be about it it's all humor because brad is super humorous right he's funny funny guy um but he'll literally like throw his keys at a drum mm -hmm. as a way of trading force you know, so like, <laughs> Bruce and I look at each other and <laughs> you know, it's really crazy. Um, so we're actually getting ready to release our, our release our second CD. That's been a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. um, I um, I did uh, the storyteller project back in 2013. Um, of all original material that is, I deem as being kind of like acoustic cinematic chamber jazz mm -hmm. yeah uh, some of the groups are kind of like pretty are like you need the drummer to dig in mm -hmm. sometimes they need to just kind of like be a wash over the whole thing and um and so i thought dan schnell would be a good person for yeah. that another working drummer podcast guest yeah oh yeah for sure yeah dan is um yeah dan's great he I also I wanted a certain um, kind of a New York element on that record, mm -hmm. and I knew Dan knew what that was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I thought it would be kind of like. Plus, also just when I when I like imagine his sound, I I imagine it working with that kind of a, a musical environment, and he he knocked it out of the park. I thought he did a great job on it. Yeah. Um. And. Uh, so it seems um, like it seems like different drummers with with different tendencies and and sensibilities bring different things out in you. Absolutely, yeah. There's a, and that's probably because I have a background as a drummer. Right, right. So, <clears throat> yeah. If I want, like, <clears throat> pardon me. If I'm looking for, yeah, it has everything to do with just like what what's the kind of uh, what is the music that I'm going to make. And how am I going to 
be expressing myself in that particular genre mm-hmm. and who am I going to partner with that yeah. I think will I'll, will create the backdrop that allows me to do that. What is the know? best looking frame for this picture? Mm. Great way of putting it. <laughs> cool. Thank yeah. you. Um, I also wanted to talk about the the group that, that you and I became really good friends on, which is the, the Jennifer Keith sextet. Oh yeah. Um, because we, we knew each other for years before joining that band, but, uh, and, and before that it was a quintet. Um, but around the same time I became the new drummer and, and you became the addition to the group to make it a sextet. Um, and I think that, uh, that, that group was a, a great experience and a musical challenge for, for both of us. Um, yeah. So, oh, for sure it was. So talk about who, who Jennifer Keith is, who Mondo is, and, and <clears throat> what, uh, what that music has brought out in your playing. Sure. Um, yeah, that's been a hugely influential um, project for me, actually. Uh, well, um, first of all, let me just say, some really great drummers have gone through that band. Mm-hmm. But none have brought to it what you brought to it. Oh, thank you, man. And I'm not just powdering your behind because this is your podcast. I mean it. I loved what you brought to that group. It was that perfect blend of support and color and interest and just balls to the wall swinging. Oh my God. I loved, <laughs> I loved working with you. I did. I miss you so much. Oh, thank you. I miss you too, man. Um, with that having been said, uh, I actually played with Mondo and Jenny back when it was a quintet with vibes and no drums. Wow. So so naturally I hate all the drummers who <laughs> came after them. <laughs> now, we were um, he um I think Mondo might have still been just in the final throes of um Royal Crown Review. Mhm. And um at the time, so the, at the time, the group was Jennifer, obviously, and and Mondo and Mark Kelly mm-hmm. on guitar. Um, which, just, dude, I learned something new from that cat every single time we play. I mean, we're yeah. playing the same tunes, and I'm just like, Mark, wow, <laughs> yeah, holy cow! Yeah. I mean, he is one of the best accompanists. Yep, just this side of the Mississippi. Yep, hands down. I agree. Brilliant, brilliant guitar player. And we're starting, you know, because we comp at the same time. Mm-hmm. So now we we have like this heavy heavy dialogue that's taking place, and he was the first person when okay I'm getting ahead of myself. <laughs> uh, so anyway, I used to play with this band when it was drummerless. Mm-hmm. It was bass, and bass player rotated out, and um, and Mark Kelly on guitar, and Jenny and Mondo and myself, and we were doing these early early jazz tunes and stuff, and and it was always Mondo's. Uh, idea that it wouldn't just be a blowing jazz gig backing up a vocalist, which I loved. Right. It was always crafted, you yeah, know? Yeah. Um, and, um, but with still with room to blow, I, I don't know how he did it. He did. It's, it's kind of a mastermind of that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But, uh, um, so it was, and that was probably, that was before they did crown, uh, uh, queen Mary. Right, right. So we're talking like seven, eight, maybe even as much as nine years ago Mm -hmm. that I played with them for about a year. And then there just wasn't money to support a six-piece band once they added Danny Glass was playing drums with us when they started bringing in drums. Mm -hmm. And uh, there just wasn't enough money to support a six-piece band 
uh, the way that Mondo wanted to do it. So <clears throat> he said, hold tight. I'm going to get back to you and we'll play again. Mm -hmm. And then I got the call like six years, seven years later. Yeah. Yeah. He actually did call me back to right. play. And that's when you and I got back together on that, on that thing. But, um, the, the experience. So what, what I've learned from that project, um, uh, when to play and when not to play, mm -hmm. how much to play, um, how to, how to like really, really swing. Yeah. Like swing, um, and not in a bop way. Right. Right. Um, cause this is, I, I wanted to mention to people like, this is a jazz group, but it is not at all a bop group. No, it's, no, not. A it's that West coast swing, like, you know, mm -hmm. pre, pre 1960, um, just dance grooves. Um, right. It's actually pop music. Yes. It's not it, modern pop music. It's pop music of the thirties, forties and fifties. Right. Right. And, uh, you know, which is exactly the music that jazz musicians were Play, where, where bop musicians were playing over, right? It's just a different. It's a different kind of thing when you've got a room full of people dancing. What I've noticed, what I've come to notice, is that you know, stringing together big, long, florid eighth note lines with a lot of chromaticism is just not. It's not the right way of playing to for that particular type of energy. Right. It doesn't punch through in the right way. Right. It's not to say that there isn't room for that sort of thing. There mm -hmm. is, and. But at the same time, I'm not interested in playing some hokey pokey like kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So for me to find my voice in that form of music has just has only been a growing experience. Yeah, yeah. Um, because I, I'm like I said, I'm not going out there copping uh, copping something. I'm st still tr improvising, and I'm still trying to be in the moment. It's just I'm improvising and being in the moment with music that is not. 1942 to 1945 bebop, right. you know? And so that's been a huge learning experience. The other part that's been a huge learning experience is comping with another comping instrument simultaneously. Right. Because Mondo loves the energy that comes from these two instruments interacting while mm -hmm. he's so, um, so it's forced me to look at the vibraphone in a, a myriad of different ways to create as many different textures as I possibly can. And also, um, you know, I said, I remember saying to Mark after the very first gig we did way back in the day before Queen Mary and all that, I remember saying to him like, you know, I hope you don't mind me comping while you, while you're comping. And he goes, no, man, actually, if you're going to do it, just keep doing it. Keep the dialogue happening because if you stop and then come back in and stop and then it's going to, then it's going to be weird. Yeah. But if you're going to do it, then just do it and we'll, we'll listen to each other Yeah. and we'll make sure that it's happening. And then, you know. Yeah. And that was um not only a very um democratic way of of dealing with things, but I thought also on Mark's behalf, it was just a really mature yeah. way of looking at the music, you know? Yeah. And from the drum standpoint, I I had the same experience in terms of comping. Like I, I really had to simplify um you know, the, the ways that I interacted with a soloist or the ways that I interacted with uh the lyrics. Um, mm -hmm. because, you know, my background and my training just, I, I was, I was always, I always had my antenna up for, for something that I could interact with or comment on or, mm -hmm. um, or echo or, or whatever. Um, and I had to really 
turn that knob down. Um, right. But I still, I still found ways to do it. They were just much more subtle um, and much, it was more, more surgical strikes than the constant sort of uh, everybody's output at once. Right. Um, right. And I think Which that's did brilliantly. Oh, thank you, man. Um, but I, I think that's where a lot of jazz doesn't do itself any favors um, because sometimes the, the dialogue and the interaction can be so complex um, that it, it loses people's attention. Like um, unless the listener is, um, you know, an experienced jazz listener or a jazz musician themselves, um, I think it, it just, it, it goes over people's heads and that's, you know, I'm certainly not the first pe- person to say that, but what that group, um, and, you know, some other jazz musicians along the way have taught me was that it, you know, you can, you can check both boxes. You can be interactive and you can play some complex shit. Um, but you can still bring, you know, the listeners who didn't go to Manhattan school of music along with you. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. And then also I think, um, you know, the, the, the thing that I've, in, in that regard, the thing that I've taken away from it is if you're soloing and you're, or you're comping, that it needs to be in, in, the, in the, the groove that everybody's playing. Right. And so with, you know, with modern jazz, there's obviously the reason why it's exciting for musicians is because um, there's not only the opportunity for it, but it's expected that you're going to be Di- you're going to be having a dialogue on the highest possible level, which means um, the the highest uh, amount of uh, juxtaposition, I suppose. Right, right, right. Juxtaposition <clears throat> of ideas, and and that the juxtaposition of these many ideas happening all at the same time. If you're capable and interested in trying to listen to it all, it's. It, feeds uh, feeds the mind you know and jazz musicians are very heady people they mm-hmm. they they didn't choose to uh, to play well they chose to play jazz because they want to they want to be part of the they want to be in on the complexity right and the um, expression and the expression and the, and the and the whatever you can express whatever at whatever point in time the thing mm-hmm. i love about this band is um you can't express anything at any point in time. You ha- have to express what works with that particular moment. Mm-hmm. And there's enough of a jazz element to where that moment will change from time to time. Right. And I, I, I noticed like the, the nature of the moment doesn't really change from night to night. Like this, this moment in that song, we, we yeah. want it, we want it to feel the same every night, but right. the, the challenge and the fun is like finding different ways to express that same feeling in that moment. Um, and that's where the spontaneity came in. Yeah, for sure. And I think also it's important to recognize that in that band, it's actually a seven piece band. And yeah. this may sound kind of corny, but the truth is there's a seventh member to that band and it's the dancers. Yeah. Yeah. And the dancers like to be able to, you know, predict what's going to happen to a certain degree mm-hmm. because the people out that are out there dancing that know our arrangements, they're crafting their dance yeah. to the arrangements. Like they're hitting stops with us and doing jumps at certain points in time. That's like fascinating to me. Right, right. To have the, these two completely different art forms interacting 
in real time. Yeah. It's like being on a Fred Astaire set or something. You know what I mean? It's just like all this crazy stuff happening out there. Right. When there's some really hardcore dancers who know the arrangements, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So you and can't even if they too divergent. Right. Right. Even if they don't know the arrangement, they're, you know, they're feeling a certain way in that moment. Like the song up to that point has brought certain things out in their dancing or they've done certain. And if, you know, if, if anybody plays something that's like out of character, yeah. Of, of the vibe that that we've set up and that the dancers are responding to, then then they're like, what what the hell? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember that first night that we played the Cosmo compared to the second night we played the Cosmo. It was like two different bands. <laughs> that first night was just like, <laughs> and then the second night was like after we had both sat with Mondo and like got on the got on board. Mm-hmm. Second night was um, was like transcendent because it was so codified yeah you know mm-hmm. um and uh and and i really had to learn how to not play because i mean i'm a i'm a band leader and so i'm trying to always create these projects that you know not necessarily feature me like a star but that allow me the freedom to play all the time right either <laughs> as comping or creating textures or soloing or playing the melody mm-hmm so for Mondo to just say to me, yeah, man, just, you know, get a, buy a really cool looking drink and hang out off to the side, like in your nice vintage suit, drink, <laughs> you know, and have a, take a sip and just look out in the audience and, right. you know, and then get back in. Like, you know, if you, if you literally need to, if you can't stop playing while you're at the instrument, walk away from the instrument. <laughs> you know? Like Miles said to train, just take the horn out your mouth. <laughs> right. I literally had to like, physically walk away from the instrument mm-hmm. and it was cool and then jenny would come back around behind mark and and mark was soloing armando was soloing and jenny and i'd like kind of hang out and you know armando would come over and we'd hang out together and right it was uh it was yeah it was an interesting learning experience totally not the manhattan school of music bop kid way of dealing with music at all right much more musical and much more much more rewarding in some some ways. Yeah, yeah. I remember Mondo uh, saying, like, on you know, we we had multiple conversations with him about this kind of thing. But but he was saying like, what what we're doing and what this band is about in some ways takes more discipline and more maturity than free jazz or hard bop. Yeah. Or you know, forms where every player has much more room to run. Um, and there are fewer, if any, consequences for somebody going off on a tangent. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I, it, it really it really changed the way I thought about not just that kind of West Coast swing music, but, but you know, all music, pop, blues, whatever. Like, each of those have a, a specific discipline that, that needs to be developed and a maturity that needs to be developed that I, that I don't think all jazz musicians really take the time to develop because they're so busy uh, playing everything all the time. Expressing themselves. Expressing themselves. I have to be able to express myself (laughs) or else I just, I don't know what I'm going to do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's that kind of a thing, right? It's like, it almost seems kind of um, a bit sophomoric. Yeah. You know, but Mm -hmm. I mean, even like Miles, asked for certain things from his band. Mm-hmm. It was still within the construct of like, you know, very explorative music, mm-hmm. 
but explorative explorative that's i like explorative i don't care if it's not a word okay well new word day <laughs> um but still you know he asked for certain things mm-hmm. you know like i mean in the later band herbie was he was like don't comp mm. don't comp under the solos yeah we don't need you don't even comp under your own solos <laughs> yeah. literally the guy used to sit on his left hand you know so, right um and then if you don't think kind of blue was crafted, well then. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know. I'm glad we finally got to hook up and, and do this. Same here. Come to Atlanta. We'll smoke a cigar on the porch. I would love to. I'd <laughs> love to. And it'll be the most expensive cigar I've ever smoked. Yeah. <laughs> it'll be worth it. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. There you go. My good friend, Nick Mancini. There's a video on this episode page of his trio from uh, his last record with Brian Charette on organ and Andy Sinisi on drums, so check that out. If you're in the L.A. area, definitely go find him. There's there's no telling what kind of project he's going to be a part of on any given night. Thanks again to our sponsors, Mapex and Aquarian. Please fill out that survey for us and be entered to win some great stuff from Aquarian. Also, you can subscribe to this podcast through iTunes and leave us a rating and review there. Thanks to Mike Jackson for his technical assistance. Matt Krause is back at you next week. Thanks for listening. See you.